Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. In vision, it passed through his mind as he was lying in bed, and he wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven turning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. And that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another one, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. And then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We ask now that as we meditate together, as our hearts are joined to your Holy Spirit in teaching us, may we now continue to mature in our understanding of who you are, who we are, and to what you have called us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. We've been through Daniel 1 through 6, and today we're going to take just one step into what's called the apocalyptic literature section of Daniel. Apocalyptic um, or revelation, the idea being this, this pulling back 
the curtains of what's really happening. Just like the book of Revelation, it's a, a type of literature that was very common in, in the culture in which the Bible was written. Uh, it's, it is a poetic, powerful, filled with imagery type of literature that, that conveys truth about what is happening. And if you continue to read through Daniel and through Revelation, the, the beasts that we see here represent these uh, great kings, empires that would be called, uh, that, would, that would come to life through history, real empires, real kingdoms. And then, and then eventually the, the great beast himself, the devil, the enemy, Satan, uh, is, is, given, is given imagery and ultimately destroyed. If we think of God as simply this, the Jesus born in this manger and there's weak, weakness and there's not much going on, we're, we're, as the Bible would say, we're very wrong. If you pull back the curtain, there is this cosmic battle going on that is, that is timeless. It goes from the beginning and, and all the way to when Jesus comes again. Now, Daniel here in his vision, so he, he's having these visions some uh, 400 years before Jesus even comes. And... Um, Part of what makes the Christian story so compelling is because we have, we have this type of prophecy um, strewn all throughout the Old Testament in which Jesus comes and he basically makes good on all of these promises. And one of those you find here, this son, this son of man. Now, if you have experience with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you hear Jesus often refer to himself as... The son of man. The son of man. In fact, when, when he's being pushed by the Jewish leaders uh, after he's arrested, there's something that Jesus says that ultimately gets him crucified. They're sitting there and they're, and they're questioning him, trying to trap him into to having, having said something that he should not say about, about God. It's called blasphemy. Because if he, blasts, if he goes through what's called blasphemy, then they, they have the right to kill him. So they're pushing him, they're pushing him, they're pushing him. And finally Jesus, finally Jesus says, and to the, to the Jewish leaders of the church, and you will see the Son of Man, you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. He points to himself as the fulfillment of, of the prophecy, the one that you have right before you here today. You'll see me as the one that's being envisioned to come. He also calls himself the one who is, the, the great I am. He's connecting all of the dots for us so we can see that he is, he is both God and this son of man. The one who comes, as we began looking at in Revelation 5 today, the one who comes worthy to open the scroll. So we have been now through, entering now into this part of Daniel. And what I want to focus on today is developing a little more about what we talked about, um, not on Good Friday, but on Christmas Eve. I was saying the beginning of the service, it's kind of like a Resurrection Sunday Christmas because uh, Good Friday would have been on Christmas Eve and then Saturday, yesterday of Christmas. On the third day, he rose again, and here we are on the third day in the morning here in worship. We talked then on Friday about things not being right. And I began to, uh, to show us the importance of Jesus coming because he is, he is this greatest gift. In order for things to be set right, we would need somebody that both had the vision for things being right, but also the authority to do so. Now, I had about five seconds to talk on Friday. I have a little more time now, so I really want to pull this 
drill down into this today. Um, what hope does humanity have? What hope do you have for things being right in your life and in the world? Now, the Sunday school answer, of course, is Jesus. Okay, but how and why? To get there, I want to first look at what do our modern, what does modern society want to, want to give to us for our hope? What, where are we putting our hope right now as a society? There's, there's two main ways that I want to, to look at. One is this idea of tolerance. If we could build a society in which the solution for everything that's wrong and, and all the all the enmity between people and, and all, the, all the chaos and, and all, all of the strife, if everyone was just tolerant with the other person, simply accepted everybody for how they are, if that was the bedrock, if that was the foundation, then everything would be okay. Something akin to, to the, the great Lenin song of, of imagine all the people. If we could just somehow step into that utopia, that, 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 that that nirvana of society in which everybody is completely accepting of the other, there would be no more problems. That's, that's one. And then there's a, second, there's a second solution that's come up. That's typically, that's typically a solution that we would, that we would call a, uh, the banner of a progressive, uh, progressive culture. And then there's, there's a second banner that's, that's raised, and I'd, I'll attribute this to more of a, uh, a conservative-leaning culture, and it's one that says, um, if only we had the same, what we call a meta-narrative, if only we had the same unifying story, the same unifying goal, an understanding of who we are, if we could keep that as the central thing, then we, all things would be right. Everybody would fall in line. We would have a, a functioning society. Now, in this country, that used to be God and, and Christianity, this, this unifying banner. Um, then last century, historians or sociologists are suggesting that that slowly became, the banner slowly became more of a, an America, a more of a uh, American pride uh, based on the wars that we were going through, and it, and it became kind of melded into Christianity. So there was this, this Christianity and also for the flag, like God and country, that became our unifying narrative, our, our common goal. And then the 21st century happens, and now it's very confusing for sociologists because there doesn't seem to be a meta-narrative anymore in our society. The, the, there's no unifying goal there anymore. So on the one hand, we have this, this leading idea that if we could just be fully tolerant, fully accepting of the other, then we would have a unity and, and, and things could be right. The other hand, there's this, there's this banner in which if we could all agree on the same most important thing, it would galvanize the society. Now, both of those are actually right <laughs> biblically in, in, the, in the way of Jesus. I, you can see both of those cultures, both of those philosophies, both of those strategies in place in what Jesus wants to do for us. There is both what we might call this um, unconditional love as a part of Jesus, and then there's also this absolute truth part of Jesus. Okay, so first of all, we want, we want to be able to see that on both sides, whoever's holding the banners, 
it's not that, not that you're completely wrong or that the other person is completely wrong. Perhaps we'll, we'll get there. The issue with being a, just completely tolerant is, is eventually you come to a line where your definition of, of what's tolerable is different than the other person's. We've, for the past couple weeks now, we've been getting into some of the world wars as examples. And let's just go there one more time. When, when World War I ends, there's a lot of issues with how, with the aftermath of what was imposed upon uh, Germany. And Hitler takes advantage of this um, rather harsh result. And he rises to power. And he begins to say things that the German people want to hear. And it takes him, and it gives him so much power that he begins down a road in which we all, we all know leads to such, such wrong, such evil. On the other side is many other world powers that were coming to stand against his ideals and what he would eventually do. So somewhere between them, there is a line in which millions of people think one way and millions of people think another way. Obviously, we know that the, the idea of simply giving someone else space, there, there is a philosophy, a political strategy that was created during this time that we now name called appeasement. The idea being that we can keep being tolerant, keep, keep this person happy as long as we can so it can keep us away from war. It did not work out. When Chamberlain waves that, that paper with the signatures that we talked about, it, this was the idea. If we could just be tolerant, we can all make this work. World War II catastrophe. So that's an extreme example, but you can play that out in, in, in the individual lives of two people also. If, if my idea of what's right and your idea of what's right start to, start to have a problem there, I think it's okay that I do this, but you don't think it's okay. But if my definition of what's okay ends up hurting you, then I have to put a line here saying, no, this is not right. On the other hand, we have the absolute this absolute um, meta-narrative that would guide society. Um, I think we've seen, as the 21st century now goes on, that the lack of a meta-narrative creates chaos. Even within the politics of this country, we used, you know, we used to be able to talk about a a Democratic or Republican party. But now, even if, if you say you're Republican or you say you're Democratic, you have to then even keep explaining what you mean by that. There's all these different subcategories and it's in the idea that humanity could somehow hold that all together has proved in, incapable uh, in our, as just the test case being our own country. What is needed, what is needed for this meta-narrative to work? What is needed is someone that can authoritatively say, this is truth. Someone who can authoritatively say, this is, this is right. This is truth. But without they, a person that everybody can commonly point to as the authority for defining what that truth is, then there will be no way for, for the people, for the world, to come together because people will, will claim to have the truth that don't have it. And we'll see through it. 
So both of these ideas of what could make things right are how, are how a lot of people think about the world and, and, and what could make things um, in harmony, how, how love could reign, how, how the, um, the violence could end. What we need is, on both sides, someone who can, who can define what is tolerable so that we can base our we can, we can base our reality on loving the other unconditionally and someone that can stand up and say, this is truth and this is the banner to revolve around. And this happens to be the same person. And now we move into what the Christian gospel. Jesus comes, this son of man who can open the scroll, this son of man who comes in the clouds, comes as the one who is able to do both. Do you know what the name Daniel means? Yes, yes, it means judged by God, judged by God. The word in Hebrew for judge, kind of dune or, or, or dean, it is a word, a lot of Hebrew words, Hebrew is a very poetic language. For all of you heartthrobs out there, you like, you like the Hebrew language. I, um, Greek was my language, it was more mathematical. But Hebrew, a lot of the words have... Uh, you can use the letters in the words in order to create the picture of what the word means. For instance, with this word for judge or judgment, dune or dean, three letters, and they, they're something like door to life or door to seeds. And the idea being that a judge is someone that can, is like the entrance way into, into life, into, into the seeds of things being right. As, as you read the book of Judges in the Old Testament, you see a number of people who God raises up, and they don't sit with black robes in a court. A lot of people think judges are, are, are people that, that came to do some sort of a, a civil duty. No, the judges are, are leaders that God raises up like doors to lead God's people back to life. Daniel's name means... That God is the one. God is the door who leads to life. What does Jesus say about himself? He says, talking about sheep, talking about uh, a pen in which you would keep sheep. Uh, Jesus is describing uh, a shepherd. He's describing sheep. He does call himself the shepherd. But then also, what does he call himself in this analogy? Imagine this, uh, this fence and there's sheep on the inside, there's sheep on the outside. Uh, what does Jesus say that he is? He says he's the door. He says he's the gate. He says he's the entrance. God, and then in Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, is this one who, who is the entrance into the seed of life, entrance to life, the judge. John 10, 9. He is the thura, the entrance, the door. As each of us look and hope for this life that would be better, this is something that we want for ourselves, but then also what we want for other people and for the world itself. Peace on earth. Peace on earth. This is something we want. We have to recognize that the the desire for tolerance, the desire for this absolute narrative of truth, be it Christianity or something else, 
are, are right. But they all rely on this judge. They all rely on this person with the ability to be the doorway in which we, are, we, we have a full understanding of what's tolerable, in which we have a full understanding of, of what truth is. Someone that can stand up, someone that can stand up and as if it was held within a scroll, be able, be able to communicate it and carry it out. And the reason why in Revelation 5 we found this person, we found John there um, in such despair that no one was found able to open the scroll is because we want this peace to come. We want this, this one that has the, uh, the power, the authority, and also the ability and the vision for toleration we, and, and, and absolute love and unconditional love. We also want the one who is able to come with the vision and the authority to point to what is truth. We want that person in our own life so that we have, we have um, our purpose defined, but then also for the world so that we don't have to have our hearts broken anymore as we see the pictures of what's happening. The only way for that scroll to be opened was for one righteous enough, for one holy enough to be there on the throne of God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We start off maybe as people that were able to approach that throne and, and, to, and to open that scroll, but in our sinfulness, all like sheep, Isaiah says, have gone astray. We put ourselves in that story, not as the shepherd, not as the sheep pen, not as the gate. We put ourselves in the story as the sheep. When Jesus is born... In this Advent, the great gift that he offers is his own life. And not just his death, but his living. I mean, anyone, all of us die. That's not the greatest gift. The gift is how he lived to the very end and then died. The gift is how he lived a completely holy life as the judge, as the one that knew the door to life, he kept the door open his entire 34, 5, 3, 6 years. He was able to keep that door open to God and never sin once. And so that when he died, the door was still open. Am I making sense? He opens the door to life as the one who understood unconditional love, as the one who understood absolute truth. He keeps that door open his entire life. It never shuts. He never closes down his love for other people. He never closes the door on what's truth in his life. He never turns his back on God once. Where does that lead him? It leads him to being falsely arrested. It leads him to all through his life being spat upon and, and called names and being judged. It leads him ultimately to the, to the horror of the crucifixion. But as he dies, the door is still open. And so what does God, what does he receive in this? That, that door that leads to life from the very beginning was supposed to be this passageway, this, this gate into the sheep pen of life, of heaven, in which there is no death. That door is never supposed to be shut. That door is supposed to be open from the beginning. 
We were supposed to live and enjoy the glory of God, this, this, this Father of heaven that loves us our entire lives. We were never supposed to enter into suffering, never supposed to enter into death. This was never God's intentional design for us. And so as Jesus dies, having the door open the entire time, when he, that means he can raise to life. Death cannot hold him. Because that is not God's design for us. With that door open, now Jesus can just walk right back through to life. He says, I will lay down my life, and I, Jesus says, will take it back up again. I will walk through that door. I will turn around on the third day, and I will walk right back through it to the shock and amazement of everyone in the world. But not only that. The gift of Jesus is that now for all of us, the Father now looks upon you, those who have given their lives to Jesus, that call him Lord, the faith that Jesus calls for. When Jesus opens that door, now God looks down upon us, and it's as if we are the ones with the door open. That's why in the Christian gospel, we have this, this hope for life even past death. Because now as the Father looks down upon us, he sees this door that Jesus left open. He sees in us that same righteousness to now be able to be called back to life. The one who came as unconditional love, the one who came as absolute truth, sets all things right all the way to the level of ending death. the gate. I am the judge. And for us now as a church moving forward in your life, we need, we need to go tell it on the mountain. In a society that's desperate for truth and rightness, we can help people see, yes, toleration is good, but we need, we need Jesus. <laughs> Yes, um, meta, this meta-narrative, this idea of absolute truth and society revolving around one, one main goal and, and, uh, and story is true, but it needs Jesus. It's, it's maybe trite to say it, but everywhere you go in life, the things that are spinning out of control, it's easy to say, example of why we need Jesus. <laughs> Come over here, this is why we need Jesus, but please don't leave it on a level without the depth we can be people with, with, with the ability to explain this clearly. We need Jesus because we need someone with the power and authority, but also with the vision of the truth. Someone who can love unconditionally and did. Someone who can keep the truth of God in front of them and did. We need Jesus because none of us can do this. We need someone who can open the gate, open that door to life, and keep it open from birth to death, and that's Jesus, okay? We have to begin communicating this clearly. We can do it. You can do it. This is not just something that I'm here to do. This is our story, not my story. We can all do this. Spend some time thinking about this. Go back home. Watch the sermon again. Spend some time thinking about this. We need Jesus in, in ways that are practical for our situation that we're in right now. As a society, 
as a country, as a world, and individually. Glory to God, because he would, was able to open the scroll. Glory to God, because he came as the Son of Man on the clouds, and he will come again. Let's pray. And Father, we, we praise you today for the gift of your Son, Jesus. We praise you today because with his authority, with his unconditional love, with his adherence to your truth, he opened the gate to life and kept it open until breathing his last. Lord, we glorify your name, Jesus, for raising yourself from death, for coming again in life and for offering us this gift that because you have risen, we too have that promise. Lord, my prayer is for people within our community that I know right now are suffering because of losing a loved ones. Lord, I pray that you lift up the Bliss family. Lord, I pray that you lift up any who mourn. And our prayer is also for people who are standing in, in the place where they, they feel the threat of, of suffering or death and the confusion that brings. Lord, I pray for for Visnia's father and for everyone that's surrounding him and for anyone else that is walking through through periods of, of, of not knowing what comes next. Lord, you have come to be our Savior, to be our Lord. You have given us your spirit to be our comforter. Thank you that, that we can worship at your throne and then receive the, the, the gift of your presence. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done, all that you are doing. Make us, form us into a community of your hope, to a community that points to you as the one we need, our judge. In your name, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen move into our time of self-offering. Please use this to let the words continue, continue to penetrate into your hearts, into your minds, as we give back to the Lord of our lives, our resources, everything that we have. Amen. Amen.